So welcome everybody to Professor Labs podcast. If you are a first time listener, then we welcome you extra, I guess. Uh, but we're happy to have you here. And I'm very excited because today we have a uh, very special guest, a former student of mine, a, a very, very, um, I, I don't know how to say it other than really energetic and, and really uh, encouraging type of student. You're kind of my, one of my ideals in terms <laughs> of what I want to work with with the student. And this, of course, is uh, Ayan, who is a rising third-year law student at UC Berkeley, and he graduated from Stony Brook University, which is one of the places where I teach, in 2018 with a degree in economics. And at Stony Brook, uh, Ayan served as the president of the undergraduate student government. And like I said, thank you so much for uh, coming on, because I know I said this with most of my guests so far, but I really do mean it that when I decided to do an educational writing-themed podcast, you know, one of my initial thoughts was, oh, I got to get him on. <laughs> and I really do mean that. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming today. For sure. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on uh, was sort of related to what we were talking about right before we hit record, which had to do with one of the ideals that I, I really think goes to the heart of what I try to teach in all of my writing classes, really, which is this idea of relevancy in writing. And and not just writing. I mean, I guess I can start just by briefly explaining that I, one of the first things I tell all my classes, whether they are freshman writing co composition classes, whether they are upper division technical writing classes, creative writing classes, doesn't matter. One of the first things I say is that good writing is only an extension of good thinking. Mm. And I think there's so many practical applications of that ideal that I really try to reiterate that in again at all all layers uh and i tried to do it through a lot of practical type exercises as well in terms of showing students how the writing and and the thinking about how and why they write the way that they do uh in in our classes really extends far beyond the classroom in in both very um i guess what i would call tangible ways as well as sort of less obvious ways that you don't even realize initially starting out so i i guess that's just what i wanted to start with uh, discussing with you is sort of, you know, does anything come to mind when we just talk in general about how there's there's so many writing lessons, I feel like, especially at the introductory level, that wind up really yielding benefits beyond the, not just the freshman classroom, but even the undergraduate experience? Yeah, I, I think a lot of what you said resonated with, with me a lot. I, I think the good writing come from good thinking. I think that's a very um, concrete point I think people miss. Um, and I, I think the biggest um, thing I learned from from your course and from other writing courses, and especially from law school, is the key to outlining, um, and, mm. and and how that um, transcends, you know, writing a brief or writing a memo, or writing an email, to just the way to operate your life, right? Which is, you know, before you do anything, be be tactful, be be coordinated, and, and be organized, right? And and of course, that's helpful. And let's say you're writing your your book or from me writing a brief. But, you know, let's say you're in the business sector and you have to make a decision, right? Having an outlined way of, okay, well, when I make a decision, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z first. Um, I think it's applicable there. I think it's applicable to to doctors and nurses, um, you know, before they make their decisions on, on how to treat or, or what to do, having an outline of how to make that decision. So I, I think writing is, yeah, is exactly what you said. It's, it's a skill that goes far beyond, you know, the piece of paper that, you use to actually the, the the life and and the way you live your life. 
Yeah, I, I, I really can't agree more with exactly what you're saying. And it's, it's funny that you say that because I feel like I've noticed it uh, particularly more over the years. And I think even just this semester, one of the points that stood out to me was exactly what you said in terms of students. Uh, one of the things that I have them do at the very end of the semester is sort of a reflection and they share their reflections with, well, what did you learn and what do you think is most valuable in terms of what you learned and will be moving forward? And I feel like more so this year than even previous years, or maybe I'm just noticing it more as I'm confirmed that this is useful and, and really vital in many of these roles that you're mentioning, is this idea of, of outlining and how that relates to organization and how that transcends just writing an academic paper. Because that's something that I try to point out to students very honestly, because I feel like that's something that they don't always get in a writing class where it feels too much like an assignment just for the sake of doing an assignment. Mm -hmm. well, well, you have to write a rhetorical analysis paper. You have to write a researched argument paper. And the, the thought, I think, among many of them is why? I don't go on Facebook and write a rhetorical analysis right. paper. You do go on Facebook to argue and sling you know, nonsense at each other, maybe. Right, right, right. But there are many other places where you do have to craft arguments and you do have to craft persuasive arguments. Um, you know, documents or, or pieces of writing, or again, you, you just have to plan out how you want to manage a project or something like that and, and what information that's based on and how you want to organize that information. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of exactly what you're referring to and, and how that, that skill of outlining it really is about larger organization and, and management, right? Right. I, I think that was one thing I, I took away from your class, which was, you know, I, I think I think you're right, right? Where I don't, you know, open Moby Dick now and, and, and think about the rhetorical strategies um, that Ahab right. used or whatever case may be. Um, but one thing that um, outlining does do and that, that people will uh, often miss is it often forces you to reject bad arguments. Um, oh, that's a good point too. Yeah. You know, it, it's not just what you include, but what you choose to exclude, right? And, and, you know, one thing they always teach us in law school is your brief can only be, let's say, 15, 20 pages long. So you can't include every single argument under the sun. And even if you could, you don't want to, right? Because if I'm trying to convince you of something, I'm not going to tell you 35 different reasons why you should do it. I'm going to tell you the, the two or three reasons why I think you should do it based on what I know about you as a person. So um, mm -hmm. that skill is transferable to, you know, a car salesman is transferable to, you know, a neurosurgeon is transferable to a mechanic to anyone. That's so interesting that you say that because that's one of the main points that I find comes up when, especially when I do, I mean, I can comment on exactly that sort of skill in a draft, but this is why I particularly like doing conference meetings and actually sitting down with students. Because what you can really, because one of the main questions they ask, especially with a researched argument paper or something like that, is, well, do I need more information? Do I need more sources? And my answer is always, it sounds like I'm being a jerk because I am, but it's getting at an actual pedagogical point, which is, I don't know, do you? Mm -hmm. Do you think your audience will be convinced by that information? Do you think your audience needs that context? Do you think your audience will find that relevant? Right. Do you think your audience will find that compelling? And they realize, the students who want to realize, well, I have to assess that. And the students who don't, who are maybe being a little lazier with it, they just sort of want to be told, uh, well, do I need, how many sources do I need? Do I need five sources? Do I need eight sources? And I always say, well, it depends upon all of these factors that we go over, right? In terms of, you know, is the audience going to have particularly strong opinions maybe going into this topic based on the nature of the topic? And exactly like you say, if it's a hard sell, well, you may need to craft how 
exactly how many sources and and to what degree you use those sources, right? But I think that that speaks to a larger issue that I encountered in my education. I still do, and I think maybe you do as well, which is we've gone from uh, an education system based on a journey to a point A to point B education system, right? Which is, you know, absolutely like yeah. now when you go to school you are taking those classes not because you find any fulfillment necessarily it's because i need to do x y and z to get mm-hmm. to the goal i need to go get to right whereas you know in my opinion and you know maybe you know this is the you know the bleeding academic in me or whatever but we should uh, prioritize the journey right the, the idea that like and and this goes for like life in general right if if you're so mm-hmm. goal driven that you miss the steps you took to get there then you know if you don't ever achieve that goal you'll you'll be ruined right um, and so I think a lot of students, I know for, for when I was a student too, taking your class, when I first started, it was like, my goal was to get an A. That, that was my goal, right? Um, because the idea was, listen, get as many A's as possible, get as high a GPA as possible, and you'll get into the best law school possible, right? That that was the thinking. And, and you know, to be fair, that is how law schools make determinations, um, which is unfortunate, right? Because I think I had the opportunity to sit back and reflect and, and, and learn through my experiences. But, you know... Can I really blame a student who is forced to take a class to that 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 doesn't want to reflect? And and that's something that you know, from my aspect, was hard to to disagree with. But I wonder from from your from your vantage point as a professor, how do you? Because I'm sure it's pretty obvious, right, that some students just are doing it because they have to. And how, how do you how do oh, you yeah. deal with that? Yeah, I mean, you're getting at the core of a, a very complicated issue, especially in terms of how it has changed over time, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you're you're absolutely right. Your assessment is spot on that more and more, and uh, you know, up until this point today, students really are viewing education as a means to an end, right. right? They're viewing it as, well, I need to do this in order to get my foot into the door at a job or to, you know, get into a graduate school program. It's about that that destination rather than than the journey itself. And it, it, you know, I think I think the toughest part, honestly, at this point, is the fact that it's become such a business model, mm. especially for the universities and the administration, where it you know they're not as concerned with the pedagogy and the journey necessarily. I mean, they are in a marketing sense. It's like right. that's what you want to act like it's like, right? right. But in terms of the the actual fiscal, you know, hard number sense, it's, well, yeah, we want our students to have high GPAs, right? We want our students to get into these good schools, right? Uh, That is a further sort of recruitment tool, therefore. Uh, So there's there's pressure in that sense, whether it's it's overt or, or, uh, you know, just sort of accidental on instructors to to sort of, you know, acknowledge that, like, yes, this is sort of why a lot of students are going there. But from my perspective, I mean, the reason why I like teaching and the reason why I started teaching at all was for exactly the reasons you say in terms of kind of uh, imparting upon students that there's a lot that you can learn here as part of that journey. Now, the difficult part becomes the fact that even the students who are interested in that, who, like you say, you know, they, they realize, oh, there's actually a lot to learn here. They still want an A. Yeah. They all think they deserve A's. And that's, you know, very problematic because like you say, that is becoming the prime, if not as far as I can tell, you know, one of the the only markers or, or certainly one of the, you know, most important markers. So they're more concerned with coming back to what I said originally, right? Which is, well, how many sources do I need? What do I need to do to get an A? Yeah. And it, it, 
you know, it's there's a reason why there are these gradations of grades, right? So yeah, I, I think it's it's more and more complicated and it's it's tough and it kind of sucks, honestly, because you know, a student who gets a lot more out of the journey but doesn't get as high of a grade as somebody who just, you know, is naturally already a more talented right. writer, whatever that means, and gets a higher grade, they see that tangible outcome as as better, right. more or less, right? And so I think that to me, that's sort of the major frustration right now with, with education or at least higher education. But I think, you know, that's that's true at the, the grade school level as well with standardized testing, right, right, certainly right. too. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, and, and yeah, again, I'll, I'll be honest, right? When like in every class in, in college, including yours, right? It was the, that laser-eyed focus of, I need to get the highest grade possible, right? And, and like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I took a class first semester of freshman year, so I didn't have that many other responsibilities. But certainly when I was president in my, in my last year, you know, I had one million things to do, right? And, and I, I would be, I would I can, be, I can imagine, you know, I'd, I'd be lying to you if, you know, I would, uh, I said that I attended every single class for every single course and, and put my all in every single, class. it just, it's a, that just didn't happen, you know, and I'll, and I'll be transparent with that, um, which sucks, you, you know, it, it just, you know, I had to, you know, was I going to go to my money and banking class? in which I knew I could study for three hours the night before the exam and get a 95 uh, and, and get that A or, right, you know, right. miss uh, three meetings with the president to work on sexual assault uh, policies at the university, right? And, and it became a thing of like, and I'm sure other students have their own responsibility, you know, working and childcare and whatever case may be. Um, so, I mean, you know, I don't know how much of it is is actually improvable, but, you know, I do think there's this ideal of a college or university being this holistic education that's being used for the monetary gain, right? Being Forcing students to take gen eds so they stay in school for longer and pay more money. But are they really mm-hmm. getting the benefit from those history or English or writing courses? I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this is what also worries me about higher education is sort of, you know, in some ways I feel like it's eating itself in that mm-hmm. sense, right? And you see this at at many schools where, well, we have to make budget cuts. Where are we going to make budget cuts? Certainly not at the administrative level because we're the ones making the budget cuts, right? (laughs) And of course, if it's pushed far enough, they will make some. But ultimately, it's what do they do? They get rid of these departments that are, in fact, part of what you're referring to as a more holistic education, right? They get rid of the theater department. They they get rid of the, you know, foreign languages departments. They, you know, cut the humanities department. And those are often... You, you know, some of the most popular right. courses, right, are right. in those departments. And, it, you know, it's certainly true in, in, in the writing classes where I've taught, where I have students time and time again who they they want me to teach other courses. They right. want to take other courses with me. Right. And I say, I would love to teach you further courses, but you have to take that up with the administration. There's There's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. And I think this is particularly sort of problematic, especially with, you know, especially now in the times that we're in where, this is only going to be accelerated, this push towards online uh, programs right. and a sort of fast-track degree programs or fast-track technical programs, because I really do feel as if, and again, it's not an absolute, right? There's always a nuance and there's always variability, but I do feel as if less and less the value of the holistic education that you're referring to, which I think for many, many, many years has been a huge part of of the vitality of a college education is degrading essentially, right. and and I think that's a shame. And I I think you know part of the problem is that is that's oftentimes hard to 
to quantify, and that's what administrations want to see, right? Because that's how they market. They they want quantifiable outcomes. And for students who I'm trying to show them, oh, these skills will will help you in all these other sorts of careers and you know, just other sorts of ways of thinking, you know, personal development as well. There's not necessarily a quantifiable right. element attached to that. So that's a very tough sell when administrations are forced to make cuts and they're not, you know, it, it's it's difficult to see that that sort of um, that that sort of value I find, right? Yeah, I, I think that also goes to the point of at a school like Stony Brook, where you know I don't know the exact numbers, but I would assume there's a huge um, uh, either plurality or majority of students who are you know pre med or pre engineering or whatever whatever you know those kind of STEM fields, you know for them they really don't see the vitality of it, right? Well, they, they should. I mean, I think writing is, as we've mentioned, is important for every, for every field, no matter, you know, what you do. But, you know, you know, if you're taking, you know, biomedical engineering one, calculus three, uh, astrophysics, and, you know, the history of, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, you know, like, it, it just comes down to a matter of, of priority and, and goal setting, right? Um, and it's unfortunate, and and I've certainly you know behind closed doors and publicly have, um, you know, commented to the Stony Brook administration that you know we need to prioritize the humanities, but you know, the big research grants are going towards, um, right? You know the you know the biomedical research researchers, right? Or the or the the medical school, um, you know, you don't see you know a five million dollar grant going to, you know. You know, creative writing. I don't know, whatever case it may be. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a larger indictment of, you know, maybe not like it's political, right? But I think that's a larger indictment of uh, capitalistic societies, right? Which is everything is driven by cost concerns, um, or, or or by careers concerns, right? Which is you know maybe not a bad thing overall, but um, in in this case, I do think it harms students long term. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you say that. Uh, you know, I. I always avoid getting too deep into uh, sort of, you know, political right. discussions for the reasons where it gets so complicated. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. You know, even with when you talk about the the sort of economic balance of, well, how do they allocate these resources? And again, it comes back to this issue of, well, where are those um, sort of tangible outcomes, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, one of the things that writing programs or English departments or whatever have done and, and continue to do, and Stony Brook is trying to do a good job of it, I think, is to, you know, offer minor programs that mm -hmm. are specifically sort of geared towards um, professional type development. So they actually have a, a couple of writing minors, and they're very popular. I forget the actual numbers uh, last I checked, but I think it was over 100 students were uh, you oh, know, wow. in, enrolled in the writing minor. Yeah, you you didn't take a writing minor, did you? I, I don't know if they. I don't even know if they, what the status was. They then. had um a creative writing one in Southampton, but I I didn't want to yeah. drive an hour an hour and a half to to go to class sure. every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, these and and so these writing minor tracks are uh, specifically geared towards uh, again this sort of professional right. development type uh type outcome, which again it's it's that's all rooted in this idea that. Well, we need to really show and make clear what those, you know, again, sort of tangible right. outcomes and goal, goals are, which, you know, that's great. But at the same time, I, I still sort of feel uh, I still sort of feel saddened by the fact yeah. that, well, well, why isn't there an appreciation for the value of the personal development, too? Mm. And to be quite honest, that's something that I've I've sort of had to 
um, I've sort of had to track back a little bit in my classes. Like I love teaching personal narrative type writing and sort of personal reflective type writing. But when you only have so much time to work with and so many resources to work with, you kind of have to prioritize, again, the more tangible right. outcome ones, like like an analysis or a researched argument or something like that, which are, in fact, required for those classes, or at least the researched uh, argument is is required for for uh, freshman comp type classes where, where I teach. Um, but I, I feel as if the, you know, again, okay, that's great to know because they may need to obviously know how to do citation and research in their other classes. Again, that's sort of the, the more tangible uh, connection. But the amount of students who have told me when we do personal narrative or personal writing, how helpful that is for them to really think through and really unlock how and why they, they, they think or feel right. the way that they do. There's this, this sort of really intimate personal type of journey, again, coming back to, okay, well, if that's part of the purpose of a college education, this is a great place to do that is, mm. is through writing. Uh, but yeah, I think that the challenge or the struggle, is, as always, is, is sort of making that obvious to administrators or, or bureaucracies, especially when and in times increasingly, stuff is on the chopping block, right? I think, but one nuance um, that we should also not fail to fail to recognize or grapple with is Stony Brook also is has a huge uh, population, once again, plurality, maybe even majority of students who are either low income or of a first generation immigrant background. I know for, for my family, I'm a family of immigrants as well. And in Pakistan, where my family is from, this concept of a holistic education, this isn't, isn't there, right? So after high school, you go straight into your uh, pre-engineering or pre-medical like, uh, or whatever studies, and that's what you do. Um, because, you know, I mean, historical reasons, you know, colonialism, whatever case may be, the resources there are very, very, very um, limited, right? And, and so you need mm -hmm. to just, you know, do what you need to do to survive type of thing. Now, take that in the American context, right? When these families come to America or when you are low-income in America, right? It's like, I would love to, you know, discover myself and learn about myself. But like, you know, I'm pursuing a degree in engineering because, listen, like I got, you know, I got a how my parents retire, right? My, you know, that's, you know, and I know so many people who lived in New York City, a lot of my friends who came to Stony Brook who, you know, they, they want to become a doctor because, you know, they want to become a doctor, but also because, um, they listen, the pay is good and, and it'll help my family, you know, get a leg up in life. And we, we've been down for a while. So that that's where it's like, I think part of it is an administration issue and part of it is a societal issue. But I think it's hard, especially in a society right now where there's, you know, so few haves and so many have nots, right? That, I mean, everyone's just trying to do what they can to, 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 to get a leg up. And, and, and that's why, you know, I'm, 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 I'm saddened like you that the humanities are, are being put as a, as a second place or as a, you know, if we have time then, but, you know, it's hard, you know, like, and, and it's just one of those things where it's like, I, I don't know what you do, you know? Yeah, it's. I mean, I you know again everything you you're saying is I I see it yeah. in the in the 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 higher education model and structure. And I always joke, but there's a you know all good jokes have a kernel of truth to them. That I wonder if it's too late to go to law school because <laughs> that is what if I were smart in the sense of prioritizing financial benefit. Yeah. There's many other careers that I probably should have gone into, right? right? And that's insane to me that, you know, jobs that I, I do that I find are immensely helpful. I mean, even tutoring that I do with students, and it really changes 
you know, how they feel about certain things or how they approach certain situations. It really helps improve their their lives on certain levels. It's just it, there's no market value yeah. to that. And and this is sort of what you were saying earlier about the sort of issue with market incentives in just you know pure yeah. capitalistic society, right? And I, I I couldn't agree more. Where we we see that you know we see that today like never before, right? Where you know you have all these essential workers. And it's like, really, they don't deserve yeah. a living wage, these yeah. people? Yeah. The whole thing would fall down without them, right? And again, if it's within this purely, you know, capitalistic laissez-faire, you know, framework, uh, that's that's just how it goes and that's how it continues to go. But I totally, uh, I totally understand what you're saying where I, I see, especially in cover letters or personal narrative writing that students do, all of the students who are studying pre-med, engineering, mostly, mostly pre-med, I find. They say how, well, I want a good paying job. I want to be able to take care of my parents. And this is the path to accomplishing that. But what I also notice when they write those papers is, I, I mean, I, I hate putting a number to it without doing the actual math myself, but I feel as if maybe half of those papers, students, at least half of them, maybe students say they don't want to be doing this. Mm -hmm. They're saying, they say that they're only doing this because they know it's a secure job. They know yeah. that it's secure income. They know that it's, you know, the path to that. Um, that that outcome, and again, in some ways, well, that's a good thing from one perspective, right? Because we do need those jobs, and we need people motivated to do these jobs well. But I have so many students every semester who wind up, you know, whether they drop out yeah. or they switch majors, they just can't hack it. And you know, anybody you know who is in, especially the medical field, my brother-in-law is a a doctor, and I mean, the he, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen-hour workdays sometimes, like. The amount of of grit and energy yeah. and self you have to put into those professions, I don't see how you do that unless you're. Right. I mean, I I, I guess you you can. You, a lot of people can make themselves do anything, right? You can right. force yourself to deal with all sorts of adverse situations if you're really forced to. But man, that's that's tough if that's not really what you're interested in, right? It's you know I I think you know the point about valuing labor. And the market incentives is is totally totally you know on on the ball, right? I know that when Stony Brook when they were cutting the writing department, I mean, I, you know, I, we we spoke about this privately, and I, I don't know how much you know you care for this to be public, but I was you know, I was like shocked, right? Because for me, you were probably, and I'm not saying I'm not just saying this because you know I'm in your podcast or whatever. You know, I've mentioned this before. Um, you were one of maybe two or three, or probably even the most influential professor I had throughout all of college. You know, and the idea that that became uh, uh, dispensable was was you know abhorrent, right? The idea that you know we're having people die working at Costco or working at Walgreens or working at CVS, you know, or you know, you know, losing their healthcare or not even having healthcare. I mean, all these things don't you know make sense. And that's why you know I initially wanted to go to law school, right? Um, but even then, you know, like I'm making certain choices about my career while in law school and after law school. That I'll be honest, right, are somewhat geared towards making you know a, a, a good buck for a little bit, you know, and and that just is what it is, you know. Like there, there's no, um, you know, I'm not gonna you know beat myself uh, for for doing that. But at the same time, you know, it's it's the reality of the world we live in. You know, it just is what it is. Yeah, and again, it's it's not as if I necessarily know or 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 would even suggest a a solution, right? Yeah. To well, this is how you fix it. And I think that's sort of the problem is uh, people like to throw out, well, this is clearly just all we should do, or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this is the answer. 
And I mean, one of the things I, I actually sort of talk about in when in um, my freshman writing class when we do research argument papers is to avoid sort of these broad sweeping yeah. topics. And it's not because I disagree with your point of view on the topics. In fact, that should have nothing to do with whether or not you write the topic. The problem is that I very highly doubt that you're going to convince many people to change their mind on abortion right. in a five or six page research paper. I just right. don't think it's going to happen, right? Or, you know, all these other sorts of contentious right. issues, right? So I, I often say, well, you know, why don't you focus on something much more narrow or much, much more specific in terms of an aspect of an issue, right? And how that works and why that works and how if elements of it were tweaked or done differently or proposed in, in, in a different way, what effects would that have towards some sort of other outcome? And students oftentimes don't like to do that because they realize that requires a lot more work Yeah, because <laughs> it's a lot more specific research. But they also often see the value in that, right? right? They they sort of see, you know, how, well, yeah, to just sort of, you know, make generalizations about how, like, well, this is how it should be, or this is how it would be fixed. It's, I mean, maybe, but, you know, do you really know that? Do you really, you know, know exactly those answers? And I think the way to get to those answers is by being more specific in your analysis of what the issues are uh, for them, I think. Also, right? it becomes a thing of um, what is your credibility in that area or topic? Right. So when I was a freshman in college, right, I'm essentially, you know, a glorified teenager. Right? I mean, I was a teenager. I wasn't even glorified. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I initially came. I remember my research topic. I, I think I initially came to you wanting to talk about. Oh, I, I, I remember your research topic. And I uh, but go ahead, because yeah. I have a funny comment on that. So, you know, initially my thought was, OK, I'm going to do this like grandiose project about um how the you know bush administration and the reagan administration just like destroyed the world case may be, right that was my initial like thought right you know but who you know as an 18 year old right how was i going to like i have my you know my my political perspective right but i doubt that anyone outside of my political perspective would just you know bought my argument if i just said listen as a muslim growing up in america you know i saw this this and this right i ended up tailoring my my paper, which, which I'm sure you remember, which, uh, to more of the uh, Iraq war and the history of colonization of Iraq, right? So it became more of a thing of I was relying on past historians and past researchers' work three-fourths of the time. And the last fourth was based on all, the, all these sources I've compiled, I think this, I forgot, I forgot what my thesis was even, but like um, based on these three or four or five different scholars, what they have said in different topics, I believe that mm -hmm. the uh, invasion of Iraq was wrong. You see what I'm saying? So I'm, yeah. I'm relying more on their credibility than my own at that point. Right. Exactly. And it that may confirm what you already believe or suspect, but you need that that right. sort of outside credibility to confirm that, right? And that's oftentimes what I tell students in terms of what is the value of researching and trying to analyze a topic. There's different values if you consider, well, what about a topic that you disagree with even where where you think like oh i have a different opinion than what people are saying well why is that the case versus mm -hmm. like well i think i have a firm opinion and i'm going to go into that with that firm opinion but i'm willing to change or sort of develop it further based on what evidence i'm presented with right, right. i always tell students if you go into a topic knowing that you are 100 percent right and that no information possibly could possibly change your opinion it's not going to go well right, right. because you're going to yeah. cherry pick there, yeah. there's no way that you can't cherry pick and I'm not saying that your opinion w w might it's not wrong. stay the yeah, same. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, it very well might yeah. might be very you know quite valid. Yeah. But oftentimes there's there's sort of nuance in terms of 
well, okay, well, you know, why is this misunderstood, right? Or why is there a strong perspective counter to this? And that's always one of my main points. If you really do want to convince others of a point that you actually believe in, you need to consider the the sort of reasoning yeah. for those viewpoints. If you demean them and mock them and sort of just deride them, again, I always tell students, like, what happens if somebody calls you an idiot and tells you to shut up because they're right? You ignore them. You don't yeah, take right. them seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having that awareness of the reasons for the alternate perspective, I think that's vital to, again, all aspects of life, whether that's working at, at a job, you, you're going to need to know how to do that to deal with people. Relationships, you're going to need to know how to do that yeah. to have successful relationships. Exactly. Right? So uh, this gets back into this idea of, you know, those those sort of tertiary benefits that far exceed, I think, just the, the, the classroom itself, right? Totally. Yeah. And, and one other funny thing, I remember very uh, distinctly sitting down with you to talk about your paper uh, about the Iraq war. It essentially was, uh, as far as I remember, wound up being about the invasion of Iraq. I think so, as yeah, yeah. Sort, As sort of the prime example of what you were referring to. <laughs> and I remember sitting down and going through the sources with you and, and sort of what you were analyzing from it. And you were very good in trying to see the alternate perspective in terms of, well, why did Bush and Cheney and you know, all these forces uh, invade Iraq, you know, for the reasons that they said. And you were like, these are all just lies. And they're not even good. You know, they're not even good lies. You're like, how is this not just all that kind of stuff? Right. How is this not just a a weird regional power grab? And I was just like, seems to me to be what the evidence is showing as well. You know, so that was a case where very much. And I think you I remember you particularly being disturbed by the fact that more people weren't disturbed by that fact. Right. Yeah. Um, and that f- says something that certainly reveals something in terms of how information is shared and how it's disseminated and how it's, uh, sort of spun by various, you know, people and various other sources. Right. So I, to me that, that seemed, you know, just talking to you, I was like, that's a very valuable lesson. I feel like yeah. <laughs> from doing a paper like this. Right. And I think that, that polarization has only gotten worse, right. That was 2015, mm. you know, obviously the, the events that have transpired since then, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there there are facts and there's alternate facts or alternative facts, whatever it's called. Um, one one fun fact, I don't know if it's a fun fact or not, but um, one of the law professors at my school is John Yu. I don't know if you know this. John Yu was responsible for writing the torture memos for George Bush. He is the one who's wow. responsible for creating Abu Ghraib and, and places like this. Um, and he can't be fired because he has tenure. But it's just, wow. just, just, just a fun fact that I can't possibly escape the Bush administration no matter where, where I go. So. <laughs> have, have you have you had uh, what does he teach? He so he used to teach like first year courses, but then after all this stuff happened, um, the administration just you know obviously like it, it was too uh, divisive for him to teach uh, a required mm. course. So he teaches like some like um, fun, uh, ironically enough um, separation of powers class, um, <laughs> which is like uh, I mean I think it's ironic and, and kind of a joke, but. Um, and you, but you haven't taken his class. No, I've seen him in the halls, and I've seen him around. Um, you know, that the, you know, it, it, it's tough to you know honestly to see his face. It, it is something that's very very difficult, right? Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, as an attorney, right, as as an aspiring lawyer, as you mentioned, right, when you're crafting a brief, when you're arguing from the court, you know, saying your your honor, like the guy's an idiot, right? That's not going to convince him, right? Being like, well, right. his his viewpoint is wrong, and because of X, Y, and Z. Right, the judge still might not rule in your favor, right? And as we're seeing, there's way more polarization on the bench nowadays than there was, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. But you know, 
like if the judge is going to be unreasonable, it's not it's not me, right? But if I start using ad hominem, which is what we talked about, right? Don't don't mudsling for right. the case of mudslinging, right? And and when it, they teach us when you're writing briefs or academic papers in law school, try to avoid alienating people unless absolutely necessary, right? So if I'm writing a paper about the Iraq War invasion, right? Obviously, I'm going to alienate very staunch, I don't know, right? Like, right, you know, invasion pro pro invasion people, right? But I think there's a lot of people on like you know who are just like they haven't formulated an opinion. Who, if I start saying, well, you know, Bush is the Antichrist, well, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to convince right, them. Right. Yeah. Or, or even, and, and that's a great, again, this is one of the, the prime skills that I really tried to teach is that there's not even, and I feel like this is a, an indictment on pretty much all media. Like I'm, you know, I feel as if there's, I, I have all sorts of media conspiracies, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, some wackier than others, but I really do think that it comes down to marketing and right. it comes down to financial incentives. And I really do think that the polarization of media is in media's best interest financially, right? right. Um, you know, my, my thinking is that I, I I feel as if headlines are crafted so that people don't click on them. People just react to them. Yeah. I don't think that headlines are necessarily to even, I mean, maybe they click on them, but I don't know how much people actually read them, right? Yeah. And I see this all over the place where I feel as if, well, this is really making it seem as if there's there's devils and angels and each side thinks they're one and the other's the other. Right. That's cr- that's crazy to me. That's right. a problem to me. Right. And I think what you're referring to with with that example, the briefs is spot on. Where like yes, there are going to be those people who are staunchly on one side, and you're probably perhaps unlikely to ever convince some of them without any, regardless of what information right, you right, put before. Right. right? Yeah. There's certain people who believe the world is flat, and even if you take them up in a spaceship and show them that the world is round, they will say, "Well, you drugged me and put me in a simulation." Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we're done here. We did right, everything right. I can, right? But then there is, again, there are still people on that side who perhaps think that they are staunchly on that side, but if presented with cogent, reasonable, considerate arguments, might start to rethink. Mm-hmm. You know, the perfect example is, have you, um, have you heard or read anything by Daryl Davis? No, I have not. No. Oh, fa- fascinating guy. I'll send you some information on him. He's, a, 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 I think, a, a, a blues musician. Um, and he has essentially spent the last, I don't even know how many years, like a couple of decades at least, uh, basically befriending the KKK or members oh, of right. the KKK. Oh, right. I read about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I recall. Yeah. yeah. Re- really fascinating guy and really interesting uh, philosophy. But his whole, uh, you know, his whole uh, ideology is based around this fact that, well, if I in- embrace these people, not in the sense of, you know, accepting, right. obviously, what they stand for. But in trying to understand where that's coming from and and obviously how that's misguided, right, um, can I sort of show them my humanity, right? Mm. And it, it, the stories he tells are, are fascinating where, where the, the stuff that these people say to him is is so outrageous, right? The most outrageous offensive stuff that you can imagine that they just state as facts of life, as facts right. of reality. Right, right, right. And he does he never gets mad he never gets angry he never gets i mean maybe he does right but um he he never sort of turns that on them he sort of just keeps asking them questions he keeps going making them go deeper and deeper and he describes it as as a chipping away process he describes it as the fact that you're not going to break these people from these molds that they many of them were raised in mm. they know nothing but those molds and, you know, he has so many stories of uh, there was one guy who was a, a head wizard of, you know, one of the clan chapters or something. 
And he was friends with the guy for, I forget how many years before the guy finally uh, resigned his position and gave Daryl Davis his cloaks mm. um, and renounced the whole thing. Cause he, it, and you know, many of the people who do this, they say that they realize they can't ignore the fact that, you know, through getting to know this guy, obviously this is all, you know, this is all ridiculous. This is all mm. based on hate and fear and all these other things. So, you know, I, I always, the, the more I read about what he does and what he says, I, I sort of see connections in, in some ways to, again, sort of what I try to get across in terms of, well, if we can at least understand why people misunderstand things, we can sort of, you know, think about more tactfully, well, how can we sort of get our foot in the door in terms of showing them that there's another way of thinking, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think on the flip side, though, there's one uh, issue I have, which is, as someone who comes from a minority background, right, there often is this impetus to prove my humanity, you know what I mean? And, and which, yeah. is what, which is what Daryl Davis had to do, right? Right, um, yeah. Which is very ex exhausting, right? I know Andrew Yang had a mm. had an op-ed he wrote in, like, in the Washington Post, I believe, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in which he said, you know, you know, because, you know, Asian Americans are being, uh, are subject to racist attacks because of the whole coronavirus um, epidemic and, and whatnot, he argued that, you know, we we being uh asian americans need to um prove our americanness more than ever and whatever case may be um you know and a lot of people had issue with that and to be honest with you i think i had some issue with that too right which was the issue with the racist attacks being hurled towards asian americans was not that asian americans weren't being american enough it was that the people who were hurling them were being racist you see, you see what i'm saying like th right. that that, that yeah. mistakes the 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 symptom for the cause but i don't i don't know how uh, if that's the right phrasing but yeah so the, the the thing i have is like i'm less concerned with you know going to the clan and and convincing them that a muslim guy like me is a human being than i am with you know going to you know i don't know right like levittown and uh you know talking to a bunch of uh you know i guess like you know moderate republicans or whatever the case may be right and being right. listening like you know you know on the news you always heard about muslims being these you know boogeymen right but like like look for x y and z reasons this just wasn't the case right or for example like the iraq war you were fed mm -hmm. this idea that these were some brutes some savages and some whatever you know i feel like those people are, are one probably more likely to accept what i'm saying as opposed to like i don't know right like a, a, a big trump person or two that like i'm less likely to be like in physical danger you know what i mean like i, sure. I, yeah. I, I don't know Absolutely. how comfortable i am to, <laughs> to to go to like a trump rally and start talking to people right because i just don't know right if i'll be able to come out of that in, in, in one piece so yeah yeah that's a great that's, that's what's kind of hard for me to, to unpack those things yeah, that's a great point too, and and I think you know it's interesting as you point out with the example of going to say some place that's a little bit more moderate, right? right? And you know, even just meeting people, and you know, I think obviously that's that's clearly part of the problem, right? Is that many many people who have racial biases that they really lean into, um, you know, maybe not to the extent that the KKK does, right? But just kind of in their you know daily lives or daily dealings. Um, you know, to a large extent, I mean, I, I forget the numbers of how many Americans don't actually know anybody who's who's Muslim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, last I checked, it's it's pretty high, yeah, right? Yeah. So sort of what you're referring to is just sort of, you know, meeting people and, and talking to people and, uh, you know, realizing that like, all right, we're all human. We're yeah. all, you know, most of the, the, the things we have in common are way more similar than the things that, you know, separate us, right? Where, yeah. you know, we're all just trying to, you know, care for our families and, and you know, care for, you know, our uh, each other and, and, and all that stuff. So, 
yeah, I, I think that's interesting how that really, you know, sort of reminds me of, you know, the fact that like, yeah, there are harder cells, right? And it's like, well, maybe we're not trying to make those harder cells, right. obviously, right? Um, we're sort of just trying to engage uh, people who, you know, again, I- even if it's, even if they don't necessarily realize that they have a uh, an opinion worth changing, they might be more more sort of malleable in that sense, right? Because maybe they haven't been exposed to these ideas, right? They haven't right. been exposed to these different cultures or these different types of people. It's just the boogeyman that they've heard on Fox News or something like that, right? Um, and and again, it's like, well, why is that your job, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, why should that be? Why should the onus uh, be on be on you? And that I don't have a good answer. For. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's for sure right, because like I don't. That. Yeah, because I don't think there is a good answer, right? Yeah. right? Um, but it's you know in part it's uh, you know and that's why I say like I don't know if I have all the the right answers to those questions for sure. But but I, I don't I think I think that no one does right. I think if you think yeah, you have the right answer exactly. to everything, right? Either you're God or you're like a false <laughs> prophet, right? That's what that's what that's the only two things, right? Um, mm. I, I think having that humility to be like, listen, I don't have all the answers. You know, I have these thoughts and these opinions, and and I I feel you know I have my own opinions. I feel very strongly about them, but I don't have the solution to everything, right? And you know, the idea is, I think you're totally correct. You know, in right now it's the month of Ramadan, right? So I've been reflecting more about my faith. And one of the um, aspects of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, that I, that I really look up to and really like a lot was he would meet people where they are, not just in a physical sense, but also mm-hmm. in, in like a mental or emotional sense, right? Which was, you know, the way I talk to you as a writing professor, right, is different than the way I talk to my seven-year-old cousin right mm-hmm. it's different than the way i talk to you know uh you know someone who's i don't know let's say like a like a neurosurgeon at at you know uh columbia right it's different than the way i talk to you know a client i'm representing right it's different than the way i'm talking to a client i'm representing who is extremely wealthy and a client i'm representing who's, who's extremely uh poor for example right and i think meeting people where they are i think that's the main thing right so mm-hmm. if i if i meet you right and the first time i meet you i won't go into hey listen like this is why you know the Iraq war was bad. I might talk to you right. first about, you know, did you watch the next game, right? Did you do you want to break right. bread with me? Do you, you uh, you know, I don't know, what is your career? What is your passion? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Do you have children? What are, what are your aspirations for your children, right? Because at the end of the day, everyone has the same thing. Everyone needs to eat, sleep, you know, you know, everyone wants a better life, right? And I think when you start with that, instead of starting mm-hmm. off with the divisive issues, I think that's when you can build some common ground, right? But if I, on the first day, if I say, hey, listen, Donald Trump is the devil, that's not going to get me anywhere. I mean, I still might have that view, but but it, it's kind of like putting the you know the chicken before the egg or whatever whatever it comes out to like that. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And and I think again, that's sort of my. I mean, that's sort of how I try to go about my life too. I feel as if that it, it and it's sort of how I feel about a lot of my philosophies. It's like I'm not necessarily actively trying to convince anybody of what I believe. But I, I think it's it's so important exactly what you say to try to connect to people. And if you can make that connection, make any sort of meaningful connection, which you can with many people for sharing those same sort of core values. Well, those those other things that are normally divisive issues, if you sort of become friends with somebody and then you realize, oh, wait, they think something totally different than I do about that. You are now more sort of engaged to say like, well, wait, why do you think that? Right. Mm. Well, you know, if we have all these other things in common, why is it that we don't have that in common? Mm. And now you're asking a good why question, right? As opposed to, well, why do you believe in the devil? Or why don't you believe in the devil? And it's also good faith, right? Like, Mm. if I, like, 
if we disagree, like I've known you for what, five years now, right? I can yeah. talk to you and I can offer you my feedback or advice or, you know, wisdom, or whatever you want to call it, without you thinking that I'm taking a shot at you as a person. Yeah. Right. right. Whereas if it's on Facebook and I don't know you, listen, let the, let the muscling begin, right? Let me just call you every name mm. in, in, the, in the book. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, again, I see that all too often, like you say, on Facebook or something like that. And I absolutely agree. I mean, people that I really like to have conversations with are actually people that I don't necessarily agree with. I mean, I have friends who, you know, very much are more on. I mean, I don't know where I'm. I am honestly on the political spectrum. I always considered myself left. Um, but I have people who are certainly on the, the you know, more of the right side of the spectrum. But I, I much rather talk to them and, and discuss with them than, you know, certain other people who aren't willing to really, you right. know, get into the issues in a genuine, genuine way, right? It stays sort of too much what I would feel is, is surface level. And again, that's not a knock on any ideology, certainly. But it's just kind of an acknowledgement, like I say, where like, I certainly know that I don't have all the answers and don't know anything. And I, I certainly don't go into discussions trying to win. Like, mm. I, I never go into a discussion or a debate saying, well, I got to come out on top. I got to come out, you know, convincing that person or making them look like an idiot or something. Like, I'm not yeah. interested in any of that. Um, and I don't think that's because I'm a better person or anything than anybody. I just don't like that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing to not like that feeling, to sort of reject that feeling. Because that's sort of an emotion that maybe, you know, in the moment or for the wrong reasons does feel good, does feel empowering. And this is what we see in divisive type politics and mudslinging on Facebook. Um but I think it's a, you know, that's a, that becomes a heavy burden and a heavy load to carry on yourself. You know, whether you want to say carry on your shoulders or your spirit or your soul or whatever that may, you know, that, how that may manifest. Um, and so it's, to me, that's, that's sort of, I, I'm looking to want to learn more, even if it's why we disagree. Mm. That's great. Like, we don't even have to get to the point where I change your mind or you change my mind. Right. Like, I think it's really interesting just to know maybe like, well, why do you believe this? Why do you mm. think differently? Okay, that's interesting. You know, maybe we can find some common ground, or at least we can understand sort of the reasons for that. Um, you know, discrepancy, whatever that may be. One thing that we they teach us in law school is to learn the policy rationales behind different arguments, right? Um, and the mm -hmm. reason is, like, you know, as some, uh, you know, I'm obviously, I think anyone who's, who's listening to this can probably guess, I'm I'm probably more very far on the left as opposed to on the right. But knowing the policy rationales, I mean, I still maybe don't agree with that person, right? But I can understand how they, how they got to that point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I can understand how the cake was baked, in, 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 in other words, right? And, you know, sometimes when I listen to a policy rationale, I'm like, you know, that actually has some tr truth to it, right? And, and it's very rare that someone is completely just out of, out of nowhere, right? Like, they're, they're just completely out of whack. So I think that forces me to temper my conclusions. Um, but also it forces me to, to reevaluate, you know, bef uh, before I make a, a, a large conclusion to reevaluate my process for getting that. And that's full circle back to our outlining argument, right? Which is, you know, which are my strongest arguments and which policy rationales are the most either agreeable or the most indisputable. You know, if, if I'm saying, Hey, we should do this because we should add this law because, you know, it, it'll feed the most children. You know, if you, if you disagree with that, I mean, like you can, but. <laughs> you know that right. you know that's an indictment on yourself right and and you know one thing i wanted to mention about outlining too is uh, I, did we do reverse outlining when you took my course i don't know if we did reverse outlining i'm no, not I, sure I, if I don't we believe did so. i don't believe so 
Have you have you heard of that? Yeah, before? yeah. So that's the idea of yeah. um, write it first and then go back and and see what what your like topic sentences are and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So, so and so the way I I describe students to do that is to write a one sentence summary of what the paragraph is mm. for each paragraph, and then sort of isolate those and read them one after the other. And if it's out of place or unclear, you know that well. Maybe you have to move something. Maybe you have to make a new paragraph or two paragraphs, right? So that's something else that I I, I have found. Uh, I just wanted to mention that students in their reflections, end of semester reflections, they actually interestingly point out is even more useful mm -hmm. to them, or some of them they find more useful than the outlining itself. Yep. And for certain types of papers, um, where you're not really sure setting out because you have again a very basic framework, but you don't know where all the puzzle pieces go quite yet. The reverse outlining, I think, is for that reason sort of they find more useful because they can then say, oh, I see, I'm missing this. You know, I have this hole to plug or, you know, I got to sort of tweak this or move this and add something in between there. So I think that's another sort of, again, very tangible writing skill where these papers work as practice to employ that skill mm -hmm. that you can then, you know, think about, well, whether you do that for other types of writing down the road or it just helps you in terms of how you develop the, your process of thinking. I, f I found students have found is is very useful. I would think that's um, very useful in a, in a personal narrative, right? Because I feel like in a, in a research-based yes. paper, you're probably going to have to outline before because you just, I mean, that's just the nature yep. of a, a research paper. But when I wrote my personal narrative for your class, I think I, I just wrote it all in one go. And I think I kind of did what you're saying, but not like I didn't know what that, what that was called at that point, which was, mm -hmm. all right, let, let me look back at it and see, well, does this make sense in the order it is, right? Am I talking about me as mm -hmm. a... 18 year old before me as a teenager before me as a whatever um mm -hmm. and if so let, let me let me work on and, and fix those fix those plugs yeah and there's lots of types of different ways that you might choose to order that right but mm -hmm. there should be a logical progression to that yeah and and i think you know again you would probably like a lot of the assignments i've added since you you've taken my class because i don't know if we did this either the parking ticket appeals yeah, yeah we did i remember, uh, I remember you, oh, we did you, you mentioned that yeah, yeah. The, the the that was the um that was the assignment where um, you wrote the email, right? And it was like the like the ethos, logos, pathos, argument day. Or was that a different day? I can't I can't recall. I I know we did that. I know we did that, but I don't remember which. So I, I I well I do two now, and I do one parking ticket appeal. So basically, and I've done more because I keep getting parking tickets on campus. <laughs> but I, I don't know why, but it just happens from time to time. And one I call Professor Jekyll, and one I call Professor Hyde, mm. and the the professor or, or the professor jekyll is like really well done it's like it's you can clearly identify oh here's developing ethos here's using logos right, right. here's some emotional appeal some pathos and it, it's concise it's it's detailed and you read it and it's like yeah i would probably grant this appeal and then i have the the professor hide one and it's just like yo man nobody said you could touch my car like i you know i'm not yeah, paying yeah. this so why are you charging me why are you wasting your time? Like, get a real job. You know, it's all the fallacies that you could possibly employ in writing a parking ticket appeal. And it's, it's again, it's, it's one of those kind of fun real world um, ideas, but there's very clear structure and ordering to mm. the good one that the not so good one you can see is, is lacking. Right. That was an enjoyable one. I think I actually used those skills in appealing a ticket of my own uh, later on. <laughs> was it granted? Probably not. I, I think I had I ended up paying a lot, especially when my last year. I ended up paying a decent amount of tickets. Um, really? Yeah. Because yeah. what was annoying was, um, and this is kind of completely off topic, but 
Um, That's fine. They, so I had a student parking pass, of course, right? Like a residential parking pass living on campus. Sure, yeah. But um, I didn't have like a, a faculty staff one. But, you know, I had right. meetings all over, all over campus, right? You know, on different... Wait, different... you were the president. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> You I didn't like, get a president parking pass? I was like, can I get a, like a parking pass, you know, you know, uh, when I have to go to a different part of campus or, you know, even let's yeah. say the medical school, right, which is kind of, like, kind of far from student apartments, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and that was always, you know, a no, right? And so sometimes you do some some trickery where it was like, if it was snowing outside, you use the snow to cover up your dashboard um, and stuff like <laughs> that, where um, I got away with it sometimes, but sometimes, you know, um, I would forget or, or whatever case may be and, you know, I'd be in a rush and I'm like, you know, listen... Let me just take the twenty dollar, whatever ticket it was, um, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. That's crazy. I it's, I would think that you could write an appeal where you would say, as it sort of feels like, okay, maybe it's bordering on low level corruption, but if ever there were yeah. low level corruption to be done, this would be it. And I think there's a very strong case for it as an administrative privilege in the sense that, like, well, yeah, you're the president, you have stuff. There's executive privilege because you have to get to these meetings, and there's no parking there. Unless you're a faculty member, which you essentially are for the student body, I just one one thing that I was always afraid of, and, and to be to be quite honest, was the fact that I'm Muslim and I'm visibly Muslim, right? And mm-hmm. everyone knows I'm Muslim, right? So anything I do, good or bad, I felt, and maybe it was as internally, but I felt it would be magnified at a, at a much more granular level, right? And so I was yeah. always very cautious to stay very very far away from. Any, any, even semblance of, of misconduct or, or you know, low level corruption, whatever, whatever you want to call it, mm. um, because I'm like, listen, you know, at the end of the day, like, which, which, you know, I don't know if it's fair or unfair or whatever, right? But you know, it just is what it is, and, and so, and so for me, I was like, you know, I'll take the take. And it, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like every single day, but there, there were definitely, you know, a good amount of my paychecks that were that were going towards uh, parking tickets. Yeah. No, I, I understand what you mean, where that, that sort of awareness is always there, but, yeah. you know, even if it's under the surface, for sure, yeah. Well, you know, I would say just keep working on the ethos, logos, and pathos for the parking <laughs> tickets, because I, I've gotten out of most of them. I think I've, I'm like eight for eight so far. Really? Which is, which is unbelievable. And I don't know, I, I feel like, knock on wood, I'm due <laughs> for them so, to so, reject So me. is it a parking picket, uh, ticket that's issued incorrectly meaning you had the pass up and they just didn't see it or was it like you didn't have anything up at all it's been everything from i think i i messaged you with one where i had the pass in the window and they yeah, just yeah. decided to give me a ticket yeah, 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 yeah. and i was kind of okay whatever but there's been other times where um i switched cars and i forgot mm. to have it in in the window and i then in my appeal said oh hey i uh you know had switched cars for the day because i was at the mechanic or something Right. And they they would grant it for that because I I say like oh my that car is still registered with you in parking services you can right, check right. Yeah, yeah and so I, I've gotten out of it that way too wow yeah. you know maybe I should have uh, you know I think I went uh, what was it the doctor uh, doctor Hyde too much instead of Doctor Jekyll right <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah I mean there, there's a little bit of both that oh, that you want maybe I mean you want a little bit of the you know hey uh you know please you want a little bit of the emotional appeal this is what i often say too yeah. emotional appeal isn't bad but it's got to be carefully calculated and right. it's got to be well balanced it unless you're the president then you do whatever the hell you want i suppose right. but uh for us you know normal people <laughs> right, we right. have to take take we're not you know whatever that is we have to take these considerations uh you know in into our our sort of uh you know h- how we approach these situations i suppose right totally yeah well, anyways, we uh, 
we're at about an hour so oh, I, wow. I guess yeah it, it flies by man i'm telling you <laughs> um so i i think we covered pretty much everything i wanted to discuss on this specific topic um and, unless there do you have anything um else that you wanted to just conclude with in terms of either how you found these skills applicable or, or how you think you might develop them further or might use them you know further any final thoughts on any of that one thing i would say is to any you know uh person who wants to improve their writing skills, like a college student or even a professional, there is no replacement for practice. You know what I mean? It's just, mm -hmm. you know, getting the shots up, right? Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan by, you know, playing 2K on his Xbox, right? He, he did that by shooting actual <laughs> uh, actual, um, actual baskets. So I think for me, and, and I think you saw this definitely um, in my progression as a writer um, from when I first met you in what, fall of 2015 to, to even now when you, when you read a post I make or whatever, um, Hopefully I improved, right? Because if I didn't, that's that's an indictment of myself. But um, mm -hmm. I think you know whatever writing experience you can get, which you know whether that's you know starting a blog on Medium um, or you know writing emails to, for your parking tickets, right? Whatever whatever experience you can get, I think is good and and valuable. And getting feedback from people you trust, I think that's a very very good way to improve your writing, but also improve your thinking and improve your organizational skills as well. Yeah, I mean those are all elements of the value of writing that I talk about, especially at the end of the semester in terms of, okay, what are you going to do with all of this moving forward? Right. Or what can you do? And and how is that valuable or useful? And I talk about exactly those same things. So I think uh, the fact that you independently say that means that there's certainly a lot to it, right? Totally. Yeah. I, think, I think it's writing 102 was, I mean, well, that's the only book that writing class you taught was mm -hmm. the most i mean maybe because I'm, I'm a lawyer now but like it was the most valuable class i took in college like bar none it just it just you know yeah. writing skills i think are integral to anyone who's trying to do anything in life yeah i mean and again it it comes back to, to thought it comes back to expression essentially you know it really should be called something along the lines of communication and, mm -hmm. and thought or something like that totally. right because that i think that's essentially the the sort of heart of it uh, at the end of the day Totally. Um, but thank you so much. This was awesome. I don't know about you, but I had a fantastic time. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. I, yeah, I, I, I've always enjoyed catching up with you. Yeah. No, it, it's it's really great to uh, get your perspective, too, as somebody who, you know, again, uh, pretty recently has been through the undergraduate experience and now especially at the at the graduate level and, and that transition to, um, you know, even further professional level. is It's really interesting to get your insight in terms of how these skills have affected you and, and how they are, you know, continuing to, to influence you and, and how you're using them moving forward. So that's, that's really great to hear. So just to uh, wrap up, I'd just like to thank all the listeners for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation as well. And uh, please share this episode with anybody who you think might be interested. You can sign up to uh, follow us at professorlabs.podbean.com or wherever else you're listening to this. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple, iTunes, all the hits. We're, we're on pretty much every <laughs> platform. Every, everything you can think of pretty much. I, I can't even think of them all right now. Uh, but we're probably there if you search for Professor Labs. And we cover, as I said at the beginning, all sorts of educational and, and writing-related topics and, and themes. So uh, check out some of our other episodes or just sign up to get more. And uh, if you have any ideas or comments or, or thoughts on anything that we've said here, you can uh, tweet at us directly at my Twitter, which is Joe T Labs on Twitter. And thank you again so much for listening. And as I always say, till next time and beyond next time, of course, keep learning. <laughs>